Welcome to episode number 15 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, a glider crash and rescue in the mountains of British Columbia. The CFI of the Invermere Gliding Centre gives us a first-hand account of this remarkable story. On Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Israel and the Megiddo Gliding Centre, where flying cross-country means avoiding hostile landouts. True Gliding is a comedic look at the world of gliding. It's been translated from Swedish to English. We speak to the author. And letting go of the apron strings, there's a new innovative cross-country program called Proving Grounds. We hear from one of the designers and how it can be implemented at your gliding club. That's all on the summer 2020 edition of the Thermal Podcast. An incapacitated glider pilot who crashed an Astier CS-77 in the remote and treacherous mountains of British Columbia is very lucky to be alive and now on the road to recovery. A fast, well-organized rescue made all the difference in saving this pilot's life. The glider's flarm also made a huge difference in locating the crash site. CFI Trevor Florence runs the Invermere Soaring Center and he played a critical role in organizing the successful rescue earlier this summer. I've reached Trevor at the Invermere Airport. Hello, Trevor. Thanks for joining us. Uh, hi, Harry. It's nice to be here. So, Trevor, yeah. when did you know things were going wrong? Okay, well, I was uh, I was uh, descending from a flight with the CFI of the Vancouver Club, and... Uh, we were coming out of the west side and we we're fairly high, you know, and we we're just losing, bleeding off altitude, just, you know, getting to the ground. And I was directing them over certain places just to, you know, give them a better idea of the area. And at about uh, 6.25, I noticed on my, uh, I, you know, I use a butterfly display with a flarm core in the dual, well, flarm core in the front and the rear. And I noticed VST, one of my gliders, uh, and I, and I, you know, just took a double take when I saw, well, minus 2,000 feet. I was at about 9,200 feet, and that would put him at 7,200 feet, which uh, in the flatlands is nothing to be alarmed about. But where where I saw the blip or the target, it uh, disturbed me. I, I go, yeah, what the hell is he doing there? Right. So, so I uh, called him on the radio, uh, no, no answer. So I just uh, turned back. Towards the target, and you know, and it said you know one and a half kilometers away, two thousand feet below, and I'm, I'm looking and you know circling and you know trying to clear the area to see if I could see him flying. And after about two minutes, I concluded that he, I, he wasn't flying. Now I got to look for him on the on the mountains. And uh, wow, that's at, that's a pretty shocking realization. Yeah, well, I, I, you you know, if you don't see him flying, he's got to be somewhere that. Flarm didn't jump out of the plane and, and land itself. So I uh, I looked up at the mountains, you know, scouring the mountains. I'm you know still not probably a little below nine thousand by this time, but you know, and um, I saw a couple of slashes of snow. Yeah, yeah, that's snow. And I oh that that doesn't look like snow. And uh, so I went towards it, and sure enough, I could see that it was a you know it was a crash glider. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's not my first, unfortunately. And um, so I, I immediately called uh, an emergency and to 
called I called ground and got them to listen to me very carefully that the glider had crashed. We need search and rescue, call 911, uh, get the helicopter pilot ready. There's one on the field there that uh, is always there. And uh, I pulled the spoilers. I was down on the ground in less than five minutes, uh, you know, descending nearly 5,000 feet. So um, he was just actually getting ready to go out on another call. So he'd already had the helicopter DI'd, the boots were off the wings, and, you know, he was ready, you know, it's a little B2, A-star. And, uh, but he waited until I got down to see if he could help. Uh, you know, the urgency of the other call wasn't, possibly wasn't quite as urgent as this one. So, uh, you know, I was down on the ground, my crew looked after the glider, and I just went and got ready to head up the mountain. I grabbed a first aid kit. So everything's and, happening very quickly. Oh yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on the ground just about six thirty, and uh, I'm probably on the top of the hill before well, at, at about seven o'clock. Um, so, you know, a few minutes to get stuff together and decide what we're going to do. Uh, make sure that search and rescue is notified and RCMP and nine one one, and I just hopped in with them, guided them to it. it of course, uh, coming from a different angle, it, was, it took us a few minutes, but probably two or three is all, uh, to locate the, the wreck again. And then he set me down on the top of the ridge. We just found a nice little nice little flat spot that we could, he could set down, didn't even have to do a hover exit. So the, this is so all I'm, close to the airport. You're not far from, from your center. Um, we're about uh, seven or eight nautical miles. Okay. So, you know, just up in the hills. Is, I mean, that's that's pretty close when it's big mountains. Right. And um, so so I made my, he, and then he had to go off on his, on, on the call that he, you know, that he previously got. So off he went. And uh, I mean, he, you know, not, we, not, neither of us really knowing that I'm, I'm going to get a ride back down, but this isn't, the, this isn't a big deal at the, at the time. I mean, I got to find out how my friend is doing. So, but at, at the moment, Based on your experience, it's the mountains. The gliders crashed. Your your heart must be in your throat, and you're thinking the worst. I imagine. Uh, I I had mentioned to him that I didn't expect a positive outcome uh, from looking at the wreck from the air. I've you know this. Um, so so we landed on the top, and it took you know maybe maybe 10 minutes to find the glider down the hill. It was about, uh, uh, about 100 meters vertical down the hill through. Uh, the, the first part of it was just slightly above the tree line and then into the trees and uh, you know where you couldn't see it, which the trees were a lucky thing, of course, at this point in time. And uh, then I, I paused and listened, and I could hear the neat, 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 neat of the gear alarm going off. Hmm. So that prompted me to head in one direction. I could find the glider, and uh, when I arrived there, I found uh, I found the pilot breathing and uh, uh, unconscious. But I mean, there was there was some eye movement. There was you know he was uh, uh, frothing at the mouth a little bit, which disturbed me. I didn't know exactly because he was head was downhill, his feet were uphill, and which I knew wasn't a very good place to be. But of course, I took a handheld radio with me, and with another glider pilot in the air, I relayed down that uh, that he was alive. Wow! And you know, everyone—it was at that point in time. There's a sigh of relief. 
and uh, you know, well, you know, I obviously couldn't hear the sigh of relief, but uh, people were, oh, okay, this is a rescue now, not a, so not a. He's uh, unconscious, but you, you you don't see broken legs. The cockpit is relatively intact, so you you, you right. So your estimation of his yeah. condition was pretty good. Well, I you know I, I I did look him over. I looked for blood, of course, first, and uh, for any obvious broken uh, legs and uh, or you know weird angle of his neck or his arms. He was he was holding his hands together and and shaking. So obvious uh, uh, shock. shock. Yeah. I had a blanket, so I wrapped him up in the blanket and I rubbed him and I talked to him and I I uh, kept wiping the the froth from his mouth so he could you know try to breathe a little clearer mm -hmm. and uh, just kept telling him to blow it out blow it out and uh, and I I could see if he would stop blowing and I'd tell him come on blow it out blow it he would he would try again so I knew there's there's something in him that was still accepting a message uh, his eyes would try to open a little bit so there is there is some something going on there but. Uh, I mean, obvious. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't as good as I was hoping right. it would be at that particular time. But, but all so, I could do so now was, the urgency, I guess, is to get the full-blown rescue people there, right? Yeah. Uh, so the, the 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 second helicopter, well, flown by Greg, he he comes over the hill in his uh, 407 with, I believe, four search and rescue or three search and rescue and one doctor. Uh, she was a young doctor that uh, applied herself to the search and rescue team. I think I think on a regular basis. I think this was something that she volunteered to do. And uh, well, as Greg come over the hill, I I stood up and I had a high vis suit on, so that uh, down here, Greg, straight in front of you, da da da. Can you see me? Yeah, yeah, I got you. This is yeah. There's a place to land just on top, and they he put those guys down. So they arrived down there. And uh, Stephanie started to do the assessment on him, and uh, you know she's feeling around, looking for pain or spots or you know you know all the obvious things. And she immediately said, um, "I I I think he's had a brain injury, likely before the accident." She had that. She said that in the first five minutes of the assessment. Wow! And, so you know, she figured a minor stroke or something. Well, you know, it's the droopy. Uh, droopy mouth and different things just gave her that impression. Right. But uh, we had a suction device, and now they got me to do the to, you know, to do the suction around the mouth and to try to keep his mouth clear. And we set up oxygen, and I was giving him oxygen while she was doing the assessment. And uh, the other guys are laying out the gurney and laying out a, a rope retrieval from the top, uh, you know, to to drag him up with. Well, drag, lift, carry. Mm -hmm. I mean. Big, big ordeal. And uh, uh, in the meantime, the other helicopter, the, well, this Greg called the uh, the guy that's uh, derated um, rescue from uh, Golden. Uh, derated means seven. Uh, you can use a long a live line. Oh, okay, so the long line the, the, the victim up, right? Yeah, or or someone down to take the victim up, or you know whatever they whatever they need to right. do. Uh, but anyway, he's live line certified. So he he arrived and he just circled around and he parked on top of a nearby mountain in case he was needed. And so we extracted Kelly from the uh, cockpit and got him upright, you know, head up the hill. 
And again, I'm just giving them oxygen and waiting for them to get uh, things get it, uh, together and Stephanie to do the, uh, you know, uh, finish her assessment. And uh, then we put them in the, it's a, you know, inflatable backcountry sling gurney device and you wrap them up in it and then suck all the air out mm-hmm. and it spins it up and, and you know, again, then, and it's got like six handles on it. And so four of us uh, carried this thing uh, two to three meters at a time. And So th- th- this is steep terrain. I mean, oh. I mean, these are the mountains of British Columbia. I mean, the very fact yeah, yeah, that he yeah. crash landed in a place where he's accessible is remarkable in itself. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, there, there's, you know, a lot of bad happened, but there's a lot of good things lined up that happened as well. Right. That, uh, that made it all happen. Um, so anyway, we, we bundled them up and, you know, hooked the rope on from the top. And there's two guys at the top at this point, uh, you know, with a pulley system. And, uh, and they're yarding it, you know, they're running down the hill to yard it up the hill in this first in their little first 20 foot section and and it didn't take us too long 10 15 minutes maybe a little more but we're you know we're we're crashing through you know the underbrush and you know slipping and sliding up the you know the scree slope it was it was this was a a, a big exertion uh on on everyone's part and uh once we got him to the top uh greg had after he brought up the other two he went down and he prepared the 212 because it's a twin, and it's the two twelve is the other helicopter. Yeah, the the, th- the third helicopter involved in this rescue. Wow, uh, it was full of full of stuff, like you know, probably a ton of gear, and all the guys at the soaring center came over and uh, helped them carry all the stuff out, you know, pack it up on the side and get it all ready, you know, in just minutes rather than the time it would have taken for one person to do it. And he he. Uh, Got up there, and that probably within about five minutes of getting Kelly to the to the top of the mountain. And so, again, I got on the top about seven. The SAR crew got there about seven thirty. Uh, we had them stabilized and hoisted to the top probably by probably before eight thirty, and uh, then in the hospital probably a little before nine o'clock. Wow! In uh, in Invermere here. Uh, where they, you know, carried on stabilizing him. Uh, then, uh, <laughs> oddly enough, I, I get a, you know, now, now I'm, you know, Greg came back up. We all hopped in the 212. Uh, we all, we we made one more trip down to the site to gather up all the gear, and uh, I, <laughs> it, it, this was a lot of work. Uh, loaded up the gear, and I'm back on the ground, uh, you know, by probably 9:30. And and you're yeah. about to have an adrenaline crash, I imagine. Well, I, the only thing that was keeping me going was adrenaline. That's for sure. Um, about uh, ten o'clock, I get a phone call from Chris Goff. You know, everyone knows Chris. Right. I used to fly with him at Sosa. Yeah, and he says, "Oh, well, it's not you." <laughs> uh, meaning that I answered my phone, and he, he and I said, "No, it's uh, you know, it's Callie." And uh, he says, yeah, I'm, uh, we're just getting the plane ready. We're going to be out to Fairmont uh, to, to pick him up. Right. So Chris, Chris flies the medevac in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He flies for the Alberta, whatever, medical services or whatever they're called. And he was in the hospital in the foothills before 3 a.m. 
about 2.45 a.m. And, of course, then they immediately uh, did the, the drains and his, you know, to relieve the pressure. And that's the, that, you know, that was mostly the extent of the injuries. So, right, right. Well, that's remarkable. Know, basically so, a brain injury at that time. Trevor, what do you think happened? So did he become incapacitated in flight and, and did the glider just fly itself into the side of the mountain? What do you think happened? Okay, I, I, I've got a very good insight, of course, because, uh, you know, I, oh, I grabbed the farm while we we're up there because I knew that this was going to be an important uh, piece of information to the puzzle. Mm-hmm. I examined it, and it's, it's, to me it's very obvious, uh, you know, what happened. Uh, about five minutes before the crash, he was, he was descending from, you know, 9,000, 10,000 feet during the flight, a normal-looking flight, just a localish flight. And, you know, just back and forth in the mountains here, you know, not too far, not too close, just, just, and he, like I, like I said, he normally flies, he wouldn't fly for more than three hours. Well, at about the two and a half hour mark or so, you could see he had made a little stab at going to the west side and he was back and probably instead of landing, he thought one more time to Fairmont and, and back. And now I'm certain that he was descending to land, coming down what we call Taggart Ridge at about 8,000 feet or so. Uh, and, and okay, and, and it all becomes abnormal about five minutes from the end of the flight. At that point, the glider starts to just gently yaw back and forth. And then it just kind of turned about 60 degrees to the right. And it sort of straightened up a bit, but carried on yawing gently back and forth on a straight downward trajectory towards the crash spot. Wow. With, with no, at that point, no, no searching for thermals, no going to places where there would be thermals. The glider was flying him at that point. Pilots just along for the ride. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm sure he was still struggling. He, he probably knew there was something wrong or, or I mean, well, yeah, to what degree, I'm not sure. But, you know, I'm sure that there's some fight left in the body because the glider would have, if it would have went, if it would have carried on absolutely straight, it would have crashed about 100 yards to the left of where it was, which was kind of a big rock wall. And, it would, you know, it would have led with the nose. Right, no surviving that situation. Yeah, but about two GPS captures in the last bit of that flight show it pulls up and to the right. And I'm certain he just... He just could see just enough that he, he, you know, he's instinctively just yarded back on the stick. The glider pulled up, you know, if you pull on the stick with your right hand, it comes over to the right. And of course the nose comes up and it veers to the right and up. Uh, it, the left wing hit a, a tree that it knocked the top off of. The right wing was torn right off and the fuselage nestled into the ground with no damage to the front of the, the fuselage. Wow. There's no impact on the nose, no, none on the front of the belly. Uh, it landed more around the, the gear area of the, of the glider. Huh. So, you know, it, it, it could have went straight in on the nose. This is such it, a and, remarkable story of survival. Yeah, yeah. and it just, it just, at that last, you look at the last little curl on that, on that uh, the flight track, and it just curled up into the right. So there's absolutely, there's, there's no glider pilot Thing going on in that last five minutes hmm. this plane was just going it was just flying wow. and 
had it been a little to the left, there was another big rocky hill that it would have run into. Uh, but had it been a little bit more to the right, like just a fraction of a degree to the right, it would have went through what we call Pedley Pass, and it's a low point in the mountains, and, the, and which goes down to about 6,500 feet. And if it would have went through that low point and crossed over the Kootenai, it, it would have, you know, at that altitude, it would have went to the other side of the Kootenai Valley, uh, up the Cross River Valley, perhaps. And it, uh, I, I would have never flown over it. Right, right. You know, other people had flown over the glider. Other people had seen VST there, but they just go, oh, it's not my way. Let's keep on going. Wow. But I, I, I mean, I, 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 I think it's everyone. It's a lesson for everyone that if you see something, look at it and just actually see if it's unusual or not. So are, is that the main lesson to be learned from this crash? Well, it's it. Well, um, you know, it's. I mean, we can't say can't don't have a, a brain bleed while you're flying. Yeah, but, that, exactly. Yes. You know, so that's yeah. But but when you are flying, be observant of every, you know, everything that you know uh, stands out or you know sticks out to you. That oh, that 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 isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't right that he was 2,000 feet below where he was. I was going to call him on the radio and say, get the hell out of there, mm-hmm. you know, before you can't. And I mean, he was, he was, to me, it was almost at an altitude where, you know, he was in a really bad place. And so then I, I had to investigate. I can't. Uh, you sure, know. of course. Well, you're running, you were on the, the soaring center there and you, you feel, a, I imagine, a tremendous amount of responsibility for the people flying around there. Well, everyone, everyone is is someone that uh, I have to, you know, be aware of and sure. look after, and, you know, try to make sure they're not doing things that are wrong and and getting themselves into places that aren't, or, you know, aren't right. So, Trevor, I'm so glad this this pilot turned, uh, you know, that it turned out okay under the circumstances. And uh, I got to say, thank you. You sound like the perfect man to have around in a crisis. Well, I mean, all I, you know, you, you, you act, you, you do whatever you can. There is a few decisions to be made, and I, I'm not sure I made everyone ex- entirely right, but I made enough of them right to allow the rest of the decisions that were to happen after that, you know, to carry on right. being right. And, uh, you know, could I have done something different? I don't know. I mean, uh that's all hindsight at this point. I guess it doesn't really matter yeah. because the, the pilot's recovering in hospital. Yeah, I, I don't think I could have seen. I mean, I, you know, I don't think I could have recognized that he was going to have an incident. I mm-hmm. don't think he could recognize that he was going to have an incident. Um, you know, that, that would be the only thing that maybe would have been worked out better. Right. But again, every, you know, we're, we're all responsible for really observing all the little things that go on around us. Uh, you know, whether it's flying or driving or walking in the bush or yeah. cleaning our house, whatever we're doing, we're all responsible for looking for hazards or, or things that are out of place. And if they're not quite right, you don't let it go by. Yeah. You just, you know, I mean, we, we need to, you know, investigate and, you know, make sure that everything is fitting in the right slots yeah. and, and not, not going awry. Well, Trevor, thank you so much for telling us this remarkable story, and uh, I'm glad it worked out. So thank you very much for the time. Okay, Harry, you take care, and uh, I hope I wasn't too boring. No, it was a, a remarkable story. Thank you, and thank you for doing all you did.
Bye. Take care, Harry. Bye. Thanks. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. CFI Trevor Florence runs the Invermere Soaring Center in British Columbia. This month on Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Israel. To be honest, I didn't even know there was a gliding club in Israel until Mike Tujaman dropped me a line. Mike is the CFI of the Megiddo Gliding Center, and I've reached him at home in Zikon Yaakov, Israel. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the Thermal. Hello, Harry. Pleasure to be here. So let's talk about your gliding club. Where exactly is it located? Well, uh, Megiddo Gliding Club is located in the north of Israel, uh, in a valley called the Israel Valley. It's uh, in between the, the middle in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Okay. About uh, 20 kilometers from each uh, uh, location. And um, the valley itself is, is a flatland, but uh, it's surrounded by uh, low hills and uh, and things like that. If we go up in the north, there are some, uh, some high mountains, but we usually fly high above them. So mostly thermal uh, flying or do you do some ridge flying yeah. as well? No, not not rich flying, but we, we uh, thermal flying mostly. Sometimes we have uh, some waves, small, okay. uh, small waves, not not uh, too big, but uh, we have sometimes. Now the, the summer heat must be pretty intense. Do you take any special precautions? Uh, well, first we are used to it. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, we uh, you put some some protection, and uh, there is a temperature limit. Above that, uh, we're not allowed to take off. Right. And uh, things like that, but uh, yeah. Now, when I heard there was a gliding club, and I guess I should have known that in Israel, one of the first things that crossed my mind was airspace issues. I mean, Israel's a, a nation with surrounded by enemies, and it's potentially a dangerous place if you're flying cross country. Do you guys go anywhere? What, what do you do for that? Well, airspace is is, is an issue in Israel because the air force is very active. We have an Air Force base just near, near our uh, local airfield, and uh, but uh, on we we operate only on weekends. Okay. Uh, Friday and Saturday. So on weekends, uh, the government uh, are uh, nice enough to uh, close some of the uh, airspace for us, and uh, they they let us actually fly all over the north of Israel. So uh, basically, we can fly from uh, uh, border to border coast country and uh, it's not unusual to do uh, flights of a uh, couple of hundreds of kilometers well wow. we, we, we do it from time to time <clears throat> um, uh, one thing that uh, that uh, stops us is is uh, we there is a and an, uh, uh, airway that crosses Israel from east to west uh, for airliners, uh, so we are not allowed to allowed to cross it from north to south. So that's the limit, but we can handle that. Right, and and you don't fly over any of the the Palestinian territories, I imagine. We can, we can. If we there is a altitude limit, mm -hmm. a minimum altitude limit, but uh, it's possible. What happens if you were to land out in in the Palestinian territory or something? Uh, I mean... That that's not a good idea. No, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> Has it ever happened? Uh, no, I think uh, no. Uh, <clears throat> if if you're going to fly, the altitude limit is something like, if I remember correctly, six thousand feet. So uh, from six thousand feet, you can uh, you can escape uh, west or east to to uh, out outside of this uh, territory. So right. it's not a problem. 
but it, it's an interesting place to fly uh, when when you've got the restrictions and stuff. But I'm glad to hear you can do a couple hundred kilometers. But you you have different things to worry about than I do when I'm flying cross country here in Canada. Uh, probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, um, but uh, we, we we managed to do uh, very nice flights. So, talk to me a little bit more about your club. Then, what what kind of gliders do you have, and and how does it uh, all come together? Well, uh, our club we we have about a little bit more than a hundred active members, mm-hmm. uh, all from all ages. I think uh, this is one of our one of the things that we are proud of is that uh, we have an active uh, pilot in the age of 92. Wow, 92. Yeah, 92, still active. Huh. And um, and many senior pilots above 80. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, we have about uh, 12 uh, club gliders. Um, four uh, two-seaters, one do discus and the others are uh, grob, twin, uh, things like that. Uh, some uh, The others are single-seaters. We have an LS4, uh, uh, discus, two, and um, Club Libel. That's a very nice fleet. Uh, yeah. Beside that, we have about uh, 25 private gliders in the, in the club. Okay. Uh, so uh, starting from uh, I think the newest one is uh, Discus uh, 2 FES and uh, we have I think a couple of ASW24 and and others now is it all is it all aerotow we do only aerotow we used to do in the past uh, car tow Mm -hmm. but uh, our airfield is a quite busy one so uh, the problem with Carto that uh, it occupies the runway for for a long time. So yeah. uh, we do only auto. We have two tow planes: one uh, a Piper Cub and the other is Piper Pony. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah. And and your training program? Do you have a, a regular, you know, students that you put through every year? What's the goal there? Uh, yes, we have about uh, right now we have about fifteen, I think, uh, students. Uh, in the in the process, uh, actually, we started the, this summer a, a program for teenagers. We have uh, eleven teenagers that uh, joined us, join join us, and uh, we are flying with them, and it's very nice, uh, a, a very nice activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the the problem with with, with training uh, that I, I would I want to talk with you about it a little bit uh, that. Our organization is based on volunteers. Nobody is getting paid in the club. Right, like most gliding uh, clubs. Structure, yeah, like most gliding clubs. So this, uh, this fact, uh, 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 the situation is that the, the students see every time they come, they see a, a different instructor. It's not the same one that fly with them all the time from start to solo. Yeah, if a student so, has had two flights, with one instructor, then he goes with the next instructor. The first flight is just to get exactly. to know you flight, and then it's exactly. it, it's it's very uh, inefficient for time. Exactly. So what we do, what we did to 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 solve to help a little bit. We didn't solve it completely, but to, to help a little bit, we built a, a web-based a, a briefing and debriefing system, where each student has have to to uh, to write 
after each flight what happened in the, in, in the flight from his point of view and mm-hmm. the instructor does the same and we share this information between the instructor towards the next flight so uh, when when i when i start uh, uh, with a new student uh, let's say tomorrow i get from the system a briefing a report what happened with the student uh, in the last three weeks and uh, what what the, the the flight instructor said about him what he says about himself and so on so this uh, this helped a little bit and and now uh, the time to 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 solo is a little bit shorter you know that's a very good idea because i i know at my club for example we have the the ptrs the pilot training records where essentially boxes get checked and then there are small comments but having yeah. a, a, a you know a couple of paragraphs describing the flight describing what's going on if you're the instructor taking over with this student the next time you you're able to get significantly more information mm-hmm. exactly hmm. we we have we we also do all this checkbox and 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 uh, and the training files and so on but it's not enough Mm-hmm. So we uh, created this system. It it works very well. <clears throat> uh, we are running the system for about two years now, and uh, I think uh, I think it works very well. It's, it's still a, t- a lot of work in the background, especially for me because I run it. Right, right. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but this is uh, this is how we deal with this situation. But and I, I was wondering if if other clubs uh, has another other other uh, uh, ideas how to solve this problem because I I assume as you said. It's a common problem for, for very uh, common problem. The... Yeah, problem. Yeah. In our, it was a problem and still is to a certain degree at my gliding club. And uh, yes, I think we'll, we'll see who uh, writes in or emails me with other ideas and then I'll interview them and maybe we can share some ideas on this. Excellent. That, that will be that will be fine. Uh, very good idea. Yeah. Uh, our uh, rule of thumb, how many flights to solo is uh, take your age at, at 20. This is the number. <laughs> this is the average. Right, right. So uh, uh, this is also a, 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 a would be interesting to know how it's going on in, in other clubs. Because uh, for us, if if we start with someone age of 40, it's 60 flights is uh, quite a lot. Right, right. Yes, when you're old, so, when you're old like me, yes, it's it's more difficult. So, so that's why we we initiated this program uh, this year to to start with teenagers mm-hmm. in the age of sixteen. If we can get them to the hobby early, then for us as a, as a gliding club, it's a, it's quite a, an issue. Do you subsidize their flying? Yeah. So that that yes, certainly we- helps. Uh, we do. Uh, we it's with uh, with the participation of the local uh, municipalities. They help also with uh, transportation, with uh, support, mm-hmm. more things like that. And that, that this is a this is a very nice uh, initiative. Great, <clears throat> Mike. Finally, what what's the the best thing about your gliding club? Well, I thought a lot about this question because I knew you were going to ask it. <laughs> uh, uh, I think the best thing is first our history. We, uh, our gliding, uh, gliding in Israel in this location at Megiddo goes back to 1938. Wow. So uh, it's uh, something like 80 years now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the second thing is uh, is our senior members. As I told you before, we have an active pilot in the age of 92, 
and many pilots above 80 still mm-hmm. flying. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> the average age of the of the club members is uh, 55, I think. Okay. Uh, so this is this is the thing what we are really proud of. And uh, your core group of, of, of pilots. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 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 members that started uh, in the early 20s and flying in Megiddo up until now. Nice. Uh, it's very nice. Yes, we're very proud of them. Is it the only gliding club in Israel? No, we have in Israel a three three gliding club. There is another one uh, in the Negev, in the south of Israel, mm-hmm. uh, near a town called Be'er Sheva. Yeah, and another famous, one famous camel uh, market there, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, and another one uh, in the north of Israel, near uh, um, just north of the Sea of Galilee, but it's a very small club. Hmm. Okay. Uh, we are the biggest one in Israel and uh, most ac- uh, the most active one. Hmm. Well, I, I really hope to be able to visit one day. It, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Mike, and uh, thank you for telling yeah. me uh, about the club. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to hear your podcasts. And I learned a lot from all the uh, episodes, Great. I must well, tell you. Thank you very much, and, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Take care. Sure, sure. Be a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Megiddo Gliding Center's CFI Mike Tujman spoke to me from Zikon Yaakov, Israel. To find out more, go to mgc.org.il. That's mgc.org.il. And now a word about our sponsor, SkySight. This weather app was designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven. I've been using SkySight all summer, and I've got to say I'm impressed with its functionality, especially for predicting convergence lines. For listeners of the Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying, or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters, and you'll get a 14-day free trial. So the promo code again, THERMAL in capital letters, and you'll get a 14-day free trial. Gliding is a sport that transcends language and international boundaries. A gliding club in Romania has the same stereotypical characters as a gliding club in the UK or France. And each club usually has the same issues, be it financial or trying to decide which glider to buy. Swedish glider pilot Bertil Olsen is a longtime observer of gliding, glider pilots, and gliding clubs. He has written a wonderful tongue-in-cheek book entitled True Gliding, and it has now been translated into English and is available online as an e-book. I've reached Bertil at his home in Gothenburg, Sweden. Hello, Bertil. Congratulations on the book. It was a really fun read. Oh, thank you very much. So Glad tell, you enjoyed it. Yeah, I did very much. Tell, tell me a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it. So the basic idea about it was that just try to write something funny about gliding and the funny thing about gliding is actually not that much happening in the air as on the ground. All the people that are part of gliding, they are sometimes very funny. They are. So, the, yeah, 
So that, that was the general idea behind and it all started out. I wrote some pieces for magazines in Sweden, gliding magazines or flying magazines. And I came up with the idea about there was a, a book that came out in the beginning of the 80s called Real Men Don't Eat Kish. Yes, Anybody I remember that. that. It was a big success in, I think, many parts of the world. And we read it in Sweden as well and thought it was very funny. And there were written a lot of paraphrases on that one. So after a few years, I came up suddenly with the idea, how about glider pilots? If, what, what's a real glider pilot? And my background was I'd been to two different clubs before with very different characters in the club and very different culture in the club. And uh, at least one of them did, did have a lot of the real glider pilot stuff, you know, a bit macho character that's especially gliding is something natural and they do their gliding their own way. Well, I've got to say that you, 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 you have met the type probably. Well, I was going to say, reading the book, I've recognized, or I do recognize those characters at the various gliding clubs I've belonged to over the years. They're stereotypes. They're yeah. good stereotypes, but they're, they exist. Yeah. Of course, they're stereotypes, and that's, you know, that, that's the part of writing something funny, is that you, you observe the reality, but you exaggerate it. Right. Very much, and then you reach a stereotype, of course, and... Then people read it, recognize the stereotype. Maybe sometimes they even recognize themselves, but that's very rare. So the, the stereotypes that you've written about in, in your book, and I, as I mentioned, I find them quite humorous. Is there a, a particular character that you really like? I should say that the character I like the most is not the character described in the text as much as the illustrations that's in the book. Right. As you see in those illustrations, that there is a, a kind of stereotype person, quite fat. <laughs> Some glider pilots tend to be that. Yes. And uh, with a special hat on their heads, and that's the archetype. I, I'm very fond of them. And now, you, you mentioned the drawings, the, the, the illustrations. Yeah. Now, you had somebody else do those, and they're, they're, they're very particular, and they're very good. But the characters that the drawings made by Justa, they are, I always like them. They, they, they are so happy. They are. They, they, in, a, in very few lines, he characterizes glider pilots, gliding, everything is perfect, I think, in those. Now, is there a so, character in the book that you identify with? If I were to go to your gliding club, would I recognize you as one of the characters? I, I've, since I've, I've been gliding since I was 15 and I'm going towards 65. So I've been gliding for almost 50 years. So I think that I've gone through a lot of, I've been a lot of these different characters <laughs> during the years. One of them that I definitely wrote from my own experience is the guy in the workshop, you know, taking care of, uh, all the gliders during the winter and people come in and say, can I help you with something? 
since I've been gliding so much, I've done a lot of different things. But that character I still recognize very much. It took you almost 30 years to get the English translation out. What, what prompted that? Well, 30 years, actually, since the Swedish version was very well received, we started quite immediately with the English translation. I thought that, okay, this is going to be peanuts. So life made us, you know, put it on ice for some time. And that, that some time turned out to be 30 years <laughs> Bef before I took it up. Well, we spoke about it each year when we met sometimes. It's like, oh, we really should do something about that. But then the old files couldn't be open and stuff like that. So it was more or less beginning again. With trying the to take them off floppy raw. disks. Yeah raw word files from the beginning of the 90s and make them readable again and then do the layout but actually i started last autumn and it was quite swift to do it when i once i started but then we also had the problem with the illustrations of course with you know putting the english translation for all the small texts that are in the illustrations that was also computer work well, I've got to congratulate you again. I think all the hard work was worth it, Bertil. So thank you for speaking to yeah. me on the Thermal Podcast. And I think I hear your dog in the background. Yeah. <laughs> she thinks I've spoken. I'm in here having fun. <laughs> well, listen, I'll, I'll let you get to your dog. But thank you very much for speaking to me about uh, true gliding. And like I said, I hope uh, yeah. it gets more... Uh, publicity and that more glider pilots around the world have a read. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bertil Olsen spoke to me from Gothenburg. If you watch an e-copy of True Gliding, go to Amazon and search for the title. True Gliding also has a page on Facebook. I'm currently reading Soaring for Diamonds by Joseph Colville Lincoln, which was first published in 1964. This almost 60-year-old account of a pilot striving for his elusive diamonds is a great read even decades later. What's in your gliding aviation library? Email me at thethermalpodcast at gmail.com with your suggestions, or go to the Thermal's Facebook page and let me know what you're reading. If you're a cross-country pilot, you'll remember your first attempt at getting away and flying beyond gliding distance of the home airport. It's a big deal and opens the door to a world of gliding beyond the club. Proving Grounds is a new made-in-Canada solution to help novice cross-country pilots to cut free from the home club's apron strings, and it's proving very successful. Patrick McMahon is one of the brains behind the project, and I've reached him in Calgary, Alberta. Hello, Patrick. Thanks for coming on the show and talking about Proving Grounds. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So talk to me about Proving Grounds. What is it? How does it work? Uh, Proving Grounds is an initiative that we started at QNM Gliding Club really to try to address the novice pilot development uh, gap between the solo pilot and then the accomplished cross-country pilot. So we created a self-assessed task flying environment at QNM and over the winter of 2018 to 2019, one of our members and part of the group um, sought to break out the IGC files and then create an automated system to evaluate the tasks against the IGC files. And that's when we really had something that was scalable. So 
The gist is you have fixed tasks, fixed tasks at each gliding club. You fly the tasks. Uh, if you feel as though you've been successful with one of them, email your IGC file to your bot for the, each club, and then you'll get a response, success or failure within about 30 seconds sent back to that same email address. You Take know what, score. I'm, I'm gonna Go interrupt you here just for a sec because sure. I'm, I'm a bit older, I'm a bit technically challenged with some of this stuff. So as I understand it, let's say I'm a, I've got my glider pilot's license. I want to take the next step. I want to start flying cross country. You're talking about each gliding club then has kind of a racetrack or a, a set triangle near the course that everybody flies. Is that how this works? Yeah, we, we try to provide three stepwise tasks um, to support the local pilot, the the initial, uh, you know, first thermals away from the local nest. And mm -hmm. then a what's generally a an equivalent 150 kilometer triangle with two kilometer ra uh, radius turn points, which is actually a, a, not an easy task to fly for for an early cross country pilot. But we go from the local pilot to um, the just out of the nest pilot to uh, a fairly decent 150 kilometer task, and uh, and that's to really try to provide the support and direction. Uh, for the club to enable uh, novice pilots to get into the wonderful world of cross-country gliding. So you've done, you've completed one of these flights, you take your IGC file and then you mail it. What what do you mail it to and what do you see afterwards? Yeah, so we would ask you to attach it to an email if you're you know, loading it onto OLC or Skylines and you could add it to an email from a web browser. It's on OLC or Skylines, you can download it and then email it. But for instance, at your club, SOSA, if you had successfully flown a proving grounds task or unsuccessfully, you could attach your IGC file to an email, send it to SOSA at soaringtasks.com, and then we will evaluate that IGC file against the fixed tasks at SOSA, and we'll email you back either your time and average speed, uh, turn points that you were near, uh, and then some just calibration points at the bottom. But you send us the IGC file, we send you a result in 30 seconds, and then you can record that on the trophies that we also send. So that's the other part of it. So you, there's a, uh, I noticed at my gliding club, we do have proving grounds. There's a sort of a magnetic board where you put names on. How does that work? So it's, uh, if anybody's seen the original BBC Top Gear show, they have that uh, metal board with magnetic strips to very unscientifically rearrange top lap times. So in the same vein as that, if your result came back and the average speed for your tasks, your, ta your task on the middle triangle or the racetrack or the large triangle was better than your friend, well, you move your friend's slip down and you put yours a little bit above and, uh, and rank them in order by average speed. And so you have this tactile, unscientific uh, trophy in the, um, in the clubhouse and we hope that you find them beautiful and, and a nice addition to support the cross-country culture at the club. Now, how many clubs across Canada have bought into this? So with the support of the Soaring Association of Canada, who's made um, these kits available to any interested gliding club in Canada, we have 13 in Canada, and we uh, have shipped our first to the U.S. and have a couple more in the pipe coming down, uh, hopefully by the end of this month. Wow, great. And is, is there a cost involved? Yeah, we're looking for 105 US dollars to um, set everything up, ship the stainless steel laser cut and etched um, trophy boards, the magnetic slips. We provide laminated task sheets 
to support the novice pilot has a land out checklist and nearby airports on the back, plus all the rules and all the turn points. Um, uh, so there's laminated ones for club ships and loose ones just to have around. Uh, as I said, shipped that kit for $105. And then we're looking for kind of maintenance and support of $35 per year, which we think is, you know, a few extra toes, or if you retain one member that makes that leap from the solo floating pilot to your next novice cross country pilot, um, we see a lot of value uh, for clubs that are interested in, in pursuing this. Now, this is a lot of work and this is gonna suck up a lot of your time. It's not, it, we're, we're doing our best to make it as systematic as possible. Um, and we're, we've got a pretty decent system in place. Uh, as far as the time that it takes, we really, we really see the future. Uh, we think soaring is a fantastic sport. And I've seen so many enthusiastic pilots come in, not make a connection and leave. So for me, this is, and for my partners in the, in the team, Chris Goff and uh, Casey Brown, for us, this is a passion project more than it is any uh, anything else to help bridge that gap, to get more novice pilots to safely transition into cross-country soaring and to um, you know adopt a passion for the sport that we have that will carry them for years to come and make them tenured members for years to come. So it does take some time, but it's uh, hearing the enthusiasm of other uh, pilots that are configuring these um, and sharing the the common problems we all have, which is how do we retain these pilots? How do we develop them that doesn't involve a bronze badge course scheduled on a weekend that invariably has poor weather? Mm -hmm. um, I think we're, it seems to us that we're onto something, we're getting a lot of really positive feedback. I was gonna say, what kind of feedback have you had? Overwhelmingly, tremendously positive feedback. I think there's a couple indicators. In 2019, there were over 400 um, tests, submissions, and failures to bots across Canada. Uh, if you do, if you find proving ground mentions in the 2019 Soaring Association of Canada reports, it's mentioned like 12 times, all with a lot of enthusiasm and, and, and hope for the future for the development of cross-country culture across Canada. And already to date, we have over 100 submissions, much fewer tests this year. Um, so I think we're seeing the uptake. It's been a very strange gliding year, 2020. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, the feedback's been really good and we're really encouraging clubs to take this off year to consider putting a system like this in place to help serve as a cornerstone for developing that, uh, that cross-country culture, starting with the novice pilot uh, and then be ready to start 2021. Hopefully things are a little bit more uh, normal, quote unquote. So before I let you go, uh, I'm a, I belong to a club somewhere in Europe. I listened to this interview. It sounds great to me. How do I get in touch with you? How do we make this happen? Sure. Uh, the best thing to do is to have a look at our website, which is soaringtasks.com. If you have any questions, definitely reach out. There's a contact form on the website. Uh, if you're sitting around with your colleagues after a day of flying and you, you, know, you draw your tasks on a local map, we recommend a kind of diamond pattern with turn points about 10K away from the local airport, a 100K and 150K triangle. If you can get your tasks together, that's the hardest part, and then reach out and we'll work through the process of setting it up and shipping it out. Uh, if there are interested clubs that do not speak French or English and would help us with language transitions, we would, uh, we would love that help and make it available anywhere in the world. It's, it works with a 
with whatever um, metrics you want, or I should say uh, units, if it's feet or meters or knots or statute miles or kilometers. So it's it's ready to go. We just need to uh, make the soaring world aware and uh, and convert on the interest. And we really appreciate your uh, offer to help us tell that story, Harry. Thanks right. very much. Well, it's a great initiative, and I wish you all the luck. We'll uh, we'll see how this goes. Take care and and good luck with this. Thanks very much. I hope to see uh, hear that your name is on one of the yeah. soaring uh, I'll, I'll, you know what? so, so I'll, soon. I will give it a shot. I should have done it this week. Actually, I was out uh, was out yesterday flying around, and I actually should have done one of those tasks. But now that you've explained it to me and I kind of understand it, I will now uh, do my best to, to complete one of these tasks. I think you'll have a lot of fun with it. Okay. Take care, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you. Patrick McMahon spoke to me from Calgary, Alberta. If you want to learn more about Proving Grounds, go to SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. That's it for episode number 15 of The Thermal. Don't forget to tell your flying buddies, your mother, and your cat to subscribe and listen to The Thermal. Have you seen The Thermal's logo? I'm thinking of selling t-shirts to help offset the cost of producing this podcast. Check out The Thermal's page on Facebook or just email me and let me know if you'd buy one for a reasonable price. If there's something you'd like to hear on The Thermal, I can be reached at The Thermal Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's the thermal podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the thermal. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe. <laughs>